thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Very good morning to you and welcome to Christmas, the naked scientist. Good morning, sir. Oh, hi, Kino. Good morning. Thank heavens the first question is not about Brexit because I'm sure you can't even answer that one. (laughs) So uh, we'll start with easy questions today, shall we? So I've got a question here. Why should a glass or two of wine cause more aggression in males than females? Good question. We don't actually know the answer to this. And the same question could be applied to, well, why does the the same volume of alcohol produce a different effect in different people? Because one person could drink alcohol and become merry and happy and cheery and then drop off to sleep. And other people, on the other hand, become very aggressive and combative. And it's probably to do with the fact that alcohol is a non-specific CNS, central nervous system depressant. When the chemical gets into your brain, it turns on or or increases the activity of the inhibitory nerve centres in your brain because it basically potentiates the action of a chemical called GABA, gamma-aminobutyric acid, which is the dominant inhibitory nerve transmitter in the brain. Now, you might say, well, why does actually inhibiting things make these behavioural changes? What's probably happening is that it disengages by inhibiting them, various other circuits in the brain which would normally gate or control your behaviour. Because everyone's brain is wired slightly differently, some people are going to be more or less sensitive to having their inhibitory systems potentiated and then other bits downstream of those things disinhibited as a result. So it's it's going to vary person to person based on how their brain is wired, how much alcohol they take and how much alcohol gets into the brain in the first place. The other thing to bear in mind, men are much bigger than women on average. So as a result, the amount of uh, dilution of the alcohol when they take it into the body is going to differ. Therefore, the rate of which the alcohol is entering the nervous system is going to differ. And a man's liver is often on average bigger than a woman's liver. So the rate of metabolism of the alcohol is also going to differ. So the rate at which the alcohol rises and falls in the bloodstream is going to differ. And that's probably the reason why in both sexes there are differences Added to that is the fact that testosterone is about 10 times higher in men than women and testosterone also has a powerful fashioning effect on the way the brain works, the way the brain's connected. Right from the time we're growing up, our brain's wired differently in the presence of of a higher level of testosterone and those changes probably make the brain more susceptible to some of the other effects of alcohol in the sense that it will cause certain behavioural shifts in certain directions. But everyone everyone can, can misbehave when they get drunk and so better to drink cautiously and enjoy drinking do it sensibly don't do it insensibly exactly this is why we love chris right because even questions that have not been answered he answers (laughs) so i love it um let's move on to another one here um what's the difference between white and brown sugar and is the one really healthier than the other and that's from keith Well, it's hard to argue that sugar is really healthy, isn't it? Because sugar is a carbohydrate that's very simple to extract energy from. Our metabolism runs uh, around glucose and white sugar is sucrose, which has got a glucose molecule stuck to a fructose molecule in it. And um, as a result, it's very easy to liberate the energy from sugars that contain sucrose. 
and therefore the body loves sugar because it doesn't have to do any work whatsoever to liberate the energy and then start metabolising in our cells. As a result, sugar can't be regarded as healthy because it packs a very hefty calorie punch. But if you're doing a very physical job or you're running some sports or you're you're, uh, otherwise very hungry, it'll be great. But the difference between the white sugar and the brown sugar is the level of refining. White sugar is highly refined sugar where basically there are no other waste products and caramel products in there. Browner sugars are sugars that contain caramelisation products and this is where the sugar has been heated to a certain uh, temperature and there's more molasses, the heavier fractions which are in the sugar. And they all have their place because these these brown chemicals taste nice or they impart a flavour to the sugar and therefore they have a place in cooking. So if you want to impart that caramelising, that very toasty flavour that brown sugars bring, you can use that to good effect in your cooking. If you just want to sweeten something, you don't want to colour the flavour. And you know, I'm using the word colour to mean as in, in the same way as journalistically we talk about colour, where we, we add something in the background to a, to, to a, a thing. If you don't want to colour your recipe, you just want to add sweetness, that's where the white sugar comes in. So it's horses for courses when it comes to sugar, but it can't be really regarded as, I'll go on brown sugar because that's better for me than white sugar because calories are calories and the world's suffering with a weight problem at the moment. There's far too many of us that are far too big and the risk is that we're all going to get diabetes. Absolutely. And here's another one. When it's bitterly cold during winter and you cover yourself totally with a blanket and it's a thick blanket or a duvet, how is it that you don't suffocate? <laughs> well, you can. <laughs> uh, you know uh, you, what will happen. Actually, is that um, when you've got a, a blanket over you, you've got to think: if you held that blanket up to the light, you probably could still see light through the blanket because there are holes or gaps between the fibres. And relative to the sizes of molecules of the oxygen that we need to breathe and the carbon dioxide we're trying to breathe away from our bodies, those gaps are like enormous, great gaping chasms. So molecules don't see the blanket as much of a barrier. It'll slow things down a bit, but not very much. And so there's no danger that you're going to massively suffocate very quickly. What will happen, though, is that the concentration of oxygen will drop a bit around you because obviously you're putting a bit of a barrier in the way of the oxygen moving. And the concentration of carbon dioxide will go up a bit because you've, again, got this barrier which is stopping the free movement of the gases. So you might find you do feel a little bit lightheaded or a bit breathless if you do that for too long. But on the whole, you're not going to suffocate unless there's a perfect barrier there. If you've got something like a plastic sheet, like you'd sleep under, uh, under yep. the, uh, in the outback or something, then you could suffocate. And you have to be very careful. Never, never put a plastic bag over your head, for example, because there, there are no gaps in that plastic. Therefore, the molecules can't move through. But a normal, porous, perforated blanket, which is woven, there are so many gaps for the molecules to sneak through that in the short term, at least, it's not really a problem. And then how can the acceleration, right, of a person on a zip line be calculated? Well, what is acceleration? Acceleration is the change in velocity with time. Yeah. And so if you measure how fast someone goes, so you say they start at one end of the zip line and they go to the other end of the zip line, and this sounds like someone's homework question, so I hope I get this right or you're not going to get an A in your class. But basically, <laughs> you, you could plot a graph of 
how fast they're going at any moment in time. Now, the way in which you do this these days is you get your mobile phone and there are accelerometers in mobile phones, which are devices which can measure how fast the phone is being moved and they can calculate the rate of change of the velocity. In the old days, we used to do this not using an app on a mobile phone, but by using a ticker timer. And what you would do is you have a device which is basically printing a dot on a piece of paper once every, once every 50th of a second. So 50 times a second it puts a dot on a piece of paper. You attach the piece of paper to the back of the thing that you're going to move and as the piece of paper is pulled through, the dots, because they're being recorded every 50th of a second, if the thing accelerates and accelerates faster and faster and faster the gaps between the dots are going to get bigger and bigger and bigger so you can measure the distances between the dots and then plot a graph and you're plotting a graph of the acceleration which is the rate of change of the velocity so you could attach a ticker tape like that to a person on a zip line they pull the tape through the ticker timer you then measure the distances between the dots and see how they're getting bigger and the rate of increase is the or decrease is their acceleration and deceleration you're listening to Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, and your questions this morning. Let's go to Dave in Buitasa. Hi there, Dave. Good morning. Morning, sir. I can't understand why there are only 28 days in February, and the other months are 30, 31. Why not make extra months of 31 days and do away with the 28 days in February? I don't understand that. Okay, Dave, thanks for asking the question, Chris. That's a really good one. I've never thought about it. But the problem is that actually February is only a couple of days short of having 30 and three days short of having 31. So if we did away with February, then we've got 28 days to kill and we haven't got enough months in the year, really. To, we'd, have, we'd, have, we'd still end up with days with funny numbers of months with funny numbers of days, wouldn't we? Mm. So it's not an easy one to solve. So poor old February's left lurking there. And anyone with a birthday in February would then feel very, very upset. And, it, and they'd feel probably almost as upset as someone who has a birthday on February the 29th because they already had to deal with having a birthday every four years and then have to deal with having no birthday at all. So probably best to leave February alone. We'll go to John in Muller Point. The previous question was uh, around, you know, our calendars and our months and why can't we just spread the days, easily, uh, you know, more um, evenly. And, you know, if we're worried about this calendar, you should try the Ethiopian calendar, though, Chris, because I'm sure you know that that calendar has got 13 months and is over seven years behind the Gregorian calendar. So, I mean, that in and of, of itself is, is quite weird. I mean, Ethiopia celebrated the new millennium on the 11th of September <laughs> 2007. And, the, and the people ask, why? Well, because Ethiopians didn't change the calendar when the Roman church amended its ancient calendar in 525 AD. You see what happens when you don't listen to church. But anyway, um, let's go to John. John in Muller Point. Hi, John. Good morning. Good morning. In all fairness, I wasn't the person who asked the question originally, but the question wasn't really to drop February at all. The question should have been maybe more accurately phrased. Why doesn't one make, for instance, December and January are both 31 days? Why don't you make January 30 days uh, and July, August are also two, two months with 30, 31 days each? So let's say we drop August and make that one also 30 days. So you're saving two days, one in January, one in August and add those to, to February, and then you've got only 30 and 31-day months rather than this odd oddity with, with, uh, with February. 
But then we wouldn't have an interesting right. rhyme, would we? Because we've got um, 30 days hath September, <laughs> April, June and November. All the rest have 31 days, except February has 28 days clear and 29 each leap year. We would have a bo- we'd have a really boring rhyme. All the months have 30 days or 31, and then you'd have to try and remember which one it was. I think, I think it's to make life interesting. And then, yeah, Bru- but Bruce also says we need that leap month still, because it's 365 and a quarter. Days. Yeah, you'll have that anyway. So then every fourth year, February will be 31 instead of 30. Okay. Nice one, John. Uh, but I think Chris did answer it, so we're going to have to make his answer rate 100%. Uh, that's okay, John. Thank you. <laughs> You're too kind. Uh, <laughs> I do try. Uh, another one here. Why do we use broad blades to cool us down for a fan and we use thin blades for wind turbines? There we go. It sounds a lot better. I'm going to speculate because I've never actually thought about this. This is a really excellent question. The wind turbines will come down to the fact that the people who designed them would have done excruciating amounts of modelling. And I don't mean modelling in the Claudia Schiffer sense. I mean as in building computer simulations, which will enable them to work out what the optimal way to make those turbines perform best to produce the most efficient extraction of energy from the air and to produce the least noise pollution the best operating range of conditions so they can tolerate operating in very light winds right through to very heavy winds. And noise is a good one because the thing about the the turbines is you don't want them to make lots of turbulence because turbulence, moving air around unnecessarily, means that you're not extracting as much energy as you could and they're going to make more noise. And in fact, when you want to cool a room down, you want to create lots of air movement and turbulence because then the air's moving chaotically all over the place and distributing the heat around the room, uh, especially taking the heat away from you. And that may be the reason. One is going to be that the the turbine needs to work under a range of conditions. The room turbine fan needs to look aesthetic and it also needs to create a whole heap of turbulence to keep you cool. So I think it's probably because when you're dealing with something which doesn't have to deal with hurricane force winds one moment and then very light breezes the next, it's just going to sit in your living room, then it's fine to make the aesthetic win out. And also the demands of the two are quite different because you want to create a turbulent effect to move air around very fast with uh, a house cooling fan but you you want to extract lots of energy very efficiently and not have loads of weight when you are trying to make the turbine work. So I think that's what it's going to come down to. It's going to be uh, horses for courses from a design point of view. Sure. Well, uh, someone's obviously getting ready for the rugby on Sunday. Uh, Here's the question. Is it a good thing to dilute your alcohol? Well, people have looked at this, actually, because there's the whole question about whether uh, mixing drinks or wine and beer in different orders makes you more or less drunk do fizzy drinks make you more or less drunk someone actually did a study where they were doing Bacardi and Coke and they looked at Bacardi and Coke or Bacardi and Diet Coke and this led to some interesting discoveries because what they found is that if you drink Bacardi and the same amount of Bacardi in Diet Coke you actually got more drunk more quickly and the argument was that what what it did was it the lack of calories in the Coke, because it was Diet Coke, encouraged more rapid gastric emptying. Because the way that our intestines work is that the stomach dispenses a certain burden of calories down the intestines at a certain rate so that you make sure you can absorb everything, you don't waste anything. 
if the stomach thinks, well, I've got nothing in here, there's not much in here that's uh, to be digested, then I'll just tip the whole lot into the intestine really quickly. And an alcohol is really easily absorbed through the wall of the intestine. So because the stomach doesn't see any calories in the Diet Coke content, it just dumped the whole lot into the small intestine where it was absorbed really efficiently, really quickly. And the people got more drunk more quickly. So there is an effect of, of diluting alcohol, but you have to remember... Ultimately, it's still alcohol. So if you drink loads of alcohol, it's still going to end up in your body. And the rate at which you drink it is going to determine the ultimate dose in your body because your liver is breaking it down at a certain rate all the time. And that's at the rate of about one unit, which is about half a pint of beer or a glass of wine per hour. But regardless of of how dilute it is, if you just drink loads of alcohol, it's all going to ultimately get absorbed and it's therefore going to be in circulation and that's the total dose that you're going to receive. So it's still going to poison you, uh, depending upon how much you drink, whether you drink it mixed with something or not mixed with something. But you might sure. affect how quickly you tip it into your intestine and therefore how quickly it goes into circulation. So a mixer does matter, but overall it's the total dose that really matters. So what, just on that point, why is it that some people can't handle three tots of tequila, right? But they can handle half a glass of straw rum. I think that's probably a myth, actually, because at the end of the day, they're they're still drinking a certain burden of alcohol. The alcohol will go into you, the alcohol will be absorbed, it will go around your body, get into your nervous system, and then it will affect different bits of your brain. I think it's probably a myth when people say, oh, I can drink this, but not, not this. If you drink a large amount of alcohol and you do it quickly, you're putting a very big big burden of alcohol very quickly into the system it will get absorbed very efficiently it will overwhelm the ability of the liver to metabolize what's going through at that moment so a lot of it will end up in circulation very quickly and when you have a big dose in circulation it will get into the brain very quickly and therefore it will cause drunkenness very quickly if you take drinks that you sip and drink slowly you're doing two things one you're limiting the rate at which the stuff's going into your body so you're giving your liver the chance to metabolize a lot of it as it goes into the bloodstream because anything you drink or eat has got to go through the liver before it gets into your circulation and two because your liver is continuously grinding away cleaning up the blood all the time anyway if you take the alcohol in a rate lower than the liver is metabolizing it you won't get drunk at all ah interesting indeed the naked scientist chris smith with you this morning hi kino and chris uh just a question i've got a microwave but uh, i was always told never to put metal in the microwave so the other day my wife saw me warming up butter but i put it on the grill function and then my wife puts it in the microwave and just puts it on normal microwave function full power and she says it works better and it, I, we've got a metal my, uh, butter dish so i was wondering why this doesn't go snap crackle and pop break the <laughs> microwave like uh, other metal does um thanks chris cheers bye there we go, Chris. We've got about, what, 35 seconds. <laughs> All right. Really neat experiment no to pressure. do. Uh, get a crisp or chip packet that's got aluminium lining. Once you've eaten the chips, put it on a plate, put it in the microwave and watch some crisp packet fireworks go on in front of your eyes. What's happening is that the microwaves are causing a big current to flow in the thin aluminium film inside the packet. And that big current heats up the aluminium melts the aluminium, melts the packet and makes the whole thing crinkle up. The reason you get sparks is because as the electricity which the microwaves are inducing in the aluminium surges backwards and forwards inside the metal, it creates little breaks in the metal and then you get a spark as it jumps over the gaps. But when you put a big piece of metal in the microwave, you get the same current flowing in the metal, but 
it's so such a good conductor and it doesn't bend and distort and open up gaps, you don't then end up with the current meeting a gap and having to jump over it with a spark. So big bits of metal won't spark in the microwave, but thin, thin pieces of metal like aluminium foils, they will. Well, there we go. And spot on, Chris. Always a pleasure chatting to you. And uh, you must definitely have a great weekend. Look forward to chatting to you next week. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, everyone. Great questions. Have a great weekend. See you soon. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.